0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about some comments from the Prime Minister about Quebec being able to rewrite part of the constitution of Canada, not just of Quebec, the Canadian constitution that it feels it wants to. Really? This is how we build a country? We'll talk about whether or not this was wise, but also whether or not this is accurate. We're also chatting about your right to disconnect. This is something people are talking about now because everyone's working from home and working a lot of hours, it seems. Do you have a right to not answer the phone when the boss calls? You might be surprised by the answer. And Canadian content. Bill C-10, which has been in the news a lot, one of the things it's trying to do, apparently, is push Canadian content, but don't we already have Canadian content laws? Do we need to push more Canadian content or do we need maybe... To leave it where it is or even pull back a bit. We'll talk about it. Stay with us.
1: Today on the Scott Radley show on 900 CHML.
0: I don't know if you heard this story today. I, I, I had to read it twice, three times, four times, listen to it. I, 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 just, I'm, I'm beyond baffled by this story that's coming out of Ottawa today and really, um, cannot see anything positive That is coming from what the Prime Minister said. This is from Global News. I'm reading off Global News' website. Quebec can modify part of the Canadian constitution unilaterally, Trudeau says. Here's the story. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Quebec can unilaterally modify part of the Canadian constitution. The province's proposed language law reform introduced last week seeks to change part of the constitution to affirm Quebec is a nation and that its official language is French. Trudeau told reporters Tuesday the federal government's initial analysis has concluded provinces can modify the part of the constitution that applies specifically to them. He says, I'm still reading from the Global News story, he says Quebec can alter the constitution to emphasize it is a nation and that its official language is French, two things that have already been recognized by the federal government. And it goes on from there. How are we a country with... One government, one federal government and one set of laws and one set of rules and one set of expectations and one set of taxation, although you have provincial taxes, I know, but all those things. How are we a country? The country we fought through, what, two big referendums, referenda, and, you know, work to keep together. How are we a country if we have now decided that one province has special dispensation to change the very constitution that overrides everything in this country and and, and helps us be part of a country. How do we, is this not exactly the kind of thing that we have, I say, that they fought these referenda in Quebec for, to very much specify, to argue vigorously that Quebec is part of Canada it is a province it is in Canada it is a part of Canada how are we not by saying this by the Prime Minister saying this how are we not undercutting the exact thing that a country is built on? I mean I, I I've been trying since I since I saw this story I've been trying to imagine how this would play now I know we're not the states and I know we don't want to be the states. But how would this play if you were a, 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 a an American president, and you came out? Joe Biden came out and said, "You know, California now has special privileges that it can declare this or that or the other. None of the other can do it. Um, the, the, the other the other states are not are not, you know, allowed to. No, really." Really? Now, the prime minister said, emphasized that other states or that provinces can do this. Trudeau told reporters Tuesday the federal government's initial analysis has concluded provinces can modify part of the constitution that applies specifically to them. Does anyone else see all kinds of loopholes and doors being kicked open and problems here? If Quebec can then declare it's a nation, now, I know the federal government has said that, the, that Quebec is a special situation and all the rest, but if it can be a nation now under the Constitution, if it can adjust the Constitution to what it wants, why would Alberta not do the same? Why would Alberta not declare that it is a unique nation? And that if if... Why could Alberta or Saskatchewan that has, relatively speaking, few francophones not declare. It is now going to treat English as the predominant. We're not going to have bilingualism. Bilingualism costs a lot of money and nobody here uses it. English is now our language. You can speak French if you want, but there's no expectation or requirement that you'd, hey, it apply, that's the part of the constitution that applies to them. Why could other things that the constitution talks about, why could other provinces not why, I mean, again, going back to Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, whatever we know with the, with the whole oil and gas thing, why, why could it not say, you know, the carbon tax, we just fought this whole carbon tax thing in the courts, but you know, I, we, we are a, we're a nation. We are a nation within this country. We have our own rules and regulations uh, where it comes to energy. I, I, I'm, I'm just stunned that, that this would be the position that the federal government would take. That, that yes, we've, we've, we know that Quebec has been treated differently over the years, but to say that it can now rewrite part of the constitution, does anyone else look at this and go, this is, this is leading us nowhere good as a country. This is going to take us nowhere good.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Chatting about the comment that the prime minister made today that, uh, Quebec can modify part of the Canadian Constitution unilaterally, doesn't need the rest of us. How does one? How does a country do that, allow that, and remain a country as opposed to a bunch of pieces of a country? It's a really interesting, difficult position. Ryan O'Connor is a lawyer with Zayuna Law Firm uh, with an interest in constitutional law. He joins us now. Ryan, thanks for doing this on very short notice. Thank you.
2: No problem, Scott. Good to be with you again.
0: Well, I, I, I'm reading this story, and I'm 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 struggling to understand how a country would can function if it allows individual parts of that country to change the constitution of the entire country. It, it just it seems like there's not much good that can come from that.
2: Well, to, to to give you a short answer, well, you're correct. I think the problem here is the prime minister's remarks today implying that. Uh, Quebec could do what it intends to do, for example, make uh, French its only official and common language, that it could do so without um, the authorization of of the federal government of the House of Commons. But I appreciate that Justin Trudeau is not a constitutional law scholar like his father, but he needs to dust off his constitutional law 101 textbook because this is absolutely unacceptable for him to make this statement because it's completely incorrect with reference to what uh, uh, Quebec's legislature is proposing to do.
0: Well, uh, before the break and before you joined us, I mean, I I raised the example, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I could be, but if if Quebec can now rework the Constitution based on this language issue, why could Alberta not say, well, almost nobody speaks French here and bilingualism costs a lot of money, so we're going to rewrite the Constitution to fit our part of the world to say we no longer subscribe to official bilingualism, we're going to subscribe to English first. Well,
2: again, the Prime Minister opened up a huge can of worms today when he asserted this incorrectly. It, the Constitution does not permit a province to amend its own constitution, which forms part of the Constitution of our country, as it pertains to the uh, to their official languages. The status of English and French in every province is protected by the Constitution. And if a province wishes to amend the status of English or French in its province, then it has to do so uh, only with the um only with the authority of the Senate and the House of Commons, so the federal government has to uh, endorse that. So, you know, a province cannot simply eliminate, in this case, uh, you know, English uh, as a language of the province. Just like in your example, Scott, Alberta could not do the same with respect to eliminating French from its institution. So, the Prime Minister is completely incorrect. Section 43 of the Constitution Act uh, clearly protects um, French and English and can only change the status within provinces with the uh, authorization of the federal government.
0: All right. And, and to your point, I mean, look, I, I, I understand he's not a constitutional law expert, but I find it very difficult to believe, even though, you know, leaders and the prime minister have said things at times that are goofy. Uh, I find it very hard to believe that you would wade into this without having asked somebody first or tested with someone. Somebody in this government must believe though, that this is the case besides him. He wouldn't have just said this by himself
2: don't necessarily know what the prime minister. He's been prone to gas before, you know, with respect to lauding China's system of government governance and, and so forth. So he has been prone to gas, but it could be a broader issue. Scott about him signaling uh, to uh you know a base of support in Quebec. You know, the, the prime minister is uh, uh, is a member of parliament from that province. Maybe signaling that that he's open to um, greater autonomy for um, uh, not only Quebec but other provinces. So that could be part of the motivation. It could be a cynical. A political ploy uh, with an election forthcoming, but as a matter of constitutional law, uh, the prime minister is, with all due respect, uh, completely incorrect.
0: Okay, so we only have a minute or so left here, but does this not and and like I don't want to raise the the temperature level on this one and and ratchet it off the the. But does this not? Open the door because if you're correct, and I believe you, you are. If you're correct, and what he said is wrong, but Quebec has now been told you can do this, and so people in Quebec are listening to this, saying, "Hey, the Prime Minister says this is fine," and then it gets shot down. Do we not run the risk of creating another constitutional? I don't want to say crisis, but a constitutional situation that this is now the arguing point and the discussion point for the next while. Well, and we've we've. So, gone through that exercise, Scott, over the last 40 years, and the constitutional
2: temperature has really been uh, um, been turned down over the last uh, decade or so. Uh, I think we're sort of on, we've moved on from those old battles. Uh, Quebec has certainly moved on in terms of the government that that it's uh, elected or seemingly did. Um, you know, let's stop talking about, you know, what divides us and let's you know, continue to talk about what unites us as Canadians. We have so many different problems with respect to our economy, the federal government's management of the pandemic, etc. That we should be talking about it in election year, and instead, uh, this really is sort of changing the channel in a way that I frankly think Canadians and, and Quebecers, uh, as well as Canadians like all of us, uh, probably don't even want to be talking about. To be quite honest with you.
0: Yeah, I, I uh, my real hope, and, and as I say, we talked about it even before you joined us, my real hope is this does not ignite something now that you've, you've now, I mean, once you've told someone you can do this, you know, when mom comes home and says, you can go and play, and then dad comes home and says, hey, why are you out playing? And you say, mom said so, and then you're mad at mom because mom's, you know, the whole thing, once you've told someone they can do something. And then you have to come if, if in the if it's the case, boy, you've got a mess on your hands when you then have to come back and say no, that's not the case because we know one thing: politicians don't like to say I was wrong. They may po- redirect, but they're not going to say I was wrong. So,
2: right. and and I just I just hope that this doesn't encourage you know other provinces where you know there hasn't really been a discussion about the constitution or, or been a discussion about separatism, et cetera, to sort of encourage those forces in those provinces to sort of become emboldened. Um, you know, we, we've seen what happened under under the prime minister's father in that respect, in terms of Western alienation. And I had hoped that over the last you know decade, we were long beyond that. And I really hope this doesn't sort of encourage a, a constant, constant um, I really hope it doesn't.
0: Ryan O'Connor, I uh, really appreciate you stepping in on short notice. Thanks for the time tonight. No problem. Always good to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast
1: on 900 CHML.
0: One of the discoveries that I think a lot of people have made during COVID comes around the issue of work, particularly those who during the pandemic have found themselves working from home. Prior to this, and this may be part of your experience, prior to this, it seemed there were an awful lot of bosses who worried that if they let their employees work from home, even part-time, they'd slack off. They wouldn't get as much done. They'd sleep in, they'd go for long walks, they'd watch soap operas, They whatever whatever the case might have been. They thought, okay, you know what? If I don't have eyeballs on these employees, I'm not going to get the same productivity out of them. Well, all the evidence now that we're seeing coming out of the pandemic says the opposite has happened. People are working not just hard, but harder than they ever have before, longer hours than they ever have before. And part of it is because if your desk is at your home, you're always near your desk, your computer is on, you never really stop. So now people are saying, wait a second, is there a way to pull back of this? Do I have what people are calling the right to disconnect? I want to bring in Mackenzie Irwin. She is a lawyer, an employment lawyer with Samfiru Tumarkin. She joins us now. Uh, Mackenzie, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it.
3: Good evening, Scott. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, let's dive right into this thing. The right to disconnect is, I mean, it's a great like catchphrase and it's one that's being thrown around now, but does such a thing actually exist? Do you have a legal right to not work?
3: Uh, unfortunately, at, at present, the law really doesn't provide for um, a way for employees to, ha- to enforce this right to disconnect or, you know, force their employers to give their employees a the right to unplug. Um, unfortunately, that's not really, the law hasn't contemplated
0: that. So what does that mean then? Because again, I mean, different people work different ways, but if your boss calls you then at seven o'clock at night, seven thirty, and there's some important issue and you don't answer your phone, could you theoretically potentially be punished by the boss for not answering the call?
3: Well, so that's, that's a little bit of a gray area there. So, um, I mean, certainly um, it, it, it's, it's going to depend on, on what the employer's expectations are of their employee and, and whether that employer has properly communicated those expectations to those employees. So oftentimes um, you'll see that uh, when an employee um, signs an employment contract, Sometimes you'll find uh, there's terms in that employment contract that kind of outline uh, the the hours that you're expected to work. You're expected to be there from nine to five on a on Monday to, to Friday, for example. Um, you know, when when there isn't really that that stipulated contractual term, um, it's real and it kind of it overflows into this at will, um, which is I think what we're finding with a lot of people working from home. Um, there really is. Um, there's a need re- these days for employees and em- and employers really to kind of a step to regroup and establish what those expectations are. Um, and I don't think so- that any
0: I don't think anybody really thought about this beforehand, right? Because once you left work before and there may have been some examples that weren't like this but once you left work assuming you left at the end of your day you were done and if it was a real emergency maybe you get a call but largely that wasn't the case now you could be getting those calls anytime
3: yeah i I think you know it's 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 really it's undeniable that the pandemic has really made unplugging a real challenge and with with these increased increased technologies the ongoing lockdowns and stay-at-home orders And that, as you said, that loss of that in-person office time. I think um, employers in Ontario have, uh, some of them, have kind of overstepped that boundary and increased their demands on their employees, which really makes it difficult to establish that clear boundary between work and personal time when you're working from home. Um, So, I mean, at this point, there isn't really a legal um, uh, way to enforce that right to unplug. But that doesn't really mean that there's just because there's no legal requirement, that doesn't mean that, you know, individual employers can't establish a disconnect policy or individual employees can't, um, you know, at this point, it's really important that these employees are communicating to their employers, um, you know, what the effects that this is having on them and and is really able to establish, to to reconnect and, and establish what, the expectations what the employer's expectations are of them if if the employer is having these exce- excessive workout uh work hours those expectations need to be re-evaluated and and the employer employee really does need to speak up to set those boundaries
1: you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml
0: Mackenzie, most people, I think, understand the the concept of squatter's rights, and it, it seems like maybe a weird thing to bring up in this context, but the idea with that is if you have lived on a piece of property that's not yours uninterruptedly for a long period of time, the law allows you to then claim that land. Can the same kind of thing apply to working from home. If you have for an extended period of time gone along and worked those extra hours and picked up the phone at seven o'clock or eight o'clock and never complained and always gone along with it and done these extra hours. And then all of a sudden can your boss determine that's then acceptable because you've shown it to be acceptable. You can't change your mind then.
3: Yeah, I mean in normal times, um, you know, pre COVID, if if you, you know, if you're behaving in a certain way and it's ongoing throughout your, your employment, you kind of um, you can be deemed to have accepted those terms. Now, in, during COVID, I'm not so sure that that, that, that might be a, a, a strong argument, but certainly it does exist. You know if you are working regularly working these excessive hours during COVID, when you're working from home and answering those calls after hours and responding to those emails after hours, you are really establishing an, an expectation with your employer um, that, that that will continue. Um, is, you know, it, it might be, now that we've been doing this, some of us have been doing this for, for almost 14 months now, um, it might be time um, where many of those employer, employees are really feeling that burnout, and they're feeling the, um, the effects of those working those excessive hours um, when they weren't really, they were maybe running on adrenaline or they were um, yeah. they weren't feeling those effects at the beginning. Now is a time when employees really do need to speak up and kind of redirect and readjust those boundaries.
0: Is the fear with a lot of people, I suspect it's the case, but is the fear with a lot of people that if you don't pick up the phone or you don't answer your email, you could be either professionally punished or more likely not punished, but when it comes time for promotions or something else that the boss will look at the person who did always do that and say, that's the person I want to hire for the promotion. Uh,
3: yeah, I think that that is a very live um, issue right now and, and a legitimate concern. So, of course, you know, many employers are going, when they're looking um, for that promotion, who to promote and they're going to, or who to provide a, a raise to, for example, um, they're going to look to those employees who are demonstrating that they're, they're fully accessible. Um, so that certainly that's a very live issue right now.
0: Now, let me play the other side of this. Then if I am a, a, a person who is ambitious and wants to get ahead in the company and I do answer the phone all the time and I do work extra, why should I not be the person who would get that promotion then?
3: Uh, well, yeah. On the flip side of that, there's no, you know, employees, employers, um, employees don't have a right to a, a promotion. Unfortunately, there's no direct. Um, without a contractual right there's no direct if you hit, hit certain marks um, there's no obligation on an employer to provide any employee with a with a promotion um, so unfortunately the law just doesn't contemplate that um, what we're looking for here I, I guess uh, what's important here is to find that cultural shift where we're where we're removing we're, we're shifting our focus from those uh, from placing that value on working those extra hours and excessive hours to more of a, uh, a, an environment that promotes more um, mental health well-being and, and more ba- a balanced workplace. Um, unfortunately, as I said at the beginning, there is no legal um, you know, reason uh, that forces an employer to give that employee their right to unplug. Um, it really does have to come from some sort of cultural shift. Or um, if the government wanted, chose to le- legislate on it, they could step in and kind of provide some guidance to employers uh, at this point.
0: And it's really hard, I would think. And, and look, I'm living this. You're living this probably. I think most people are. It's hard, w- When you're at the office, you can see who's working, who's there all the time. You, you have a good idea of what the hours are people are putting. If you're at home, you're guessing. And so you may feel, I guess, like, you know, I have to do this because everybody else is. I have to put in 15-hour days because everyone else is. Not everybody might be doing this, and you're just guilting yourself into thinking you have to do this.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly a live possibility. Um, I think it's, it's important at this point for – I'm going to kind of go back to, to the basics here. It's important, you know, we, while we might have established a pattern of, of working these excessive hours during COVID – Um, Some employees might want to look back onto their employment contract because many employment contracts do actually outline the expectations for work. So if your employment contract, for example, stipulates that the expectation is that you're you're available and at work from nine to five. Um, for Monday to Friday, then now might be a time to kind of connect with your employer and say, hey, I've noticed, you know, I'm working. First of all, I think it's really important that the employees are tracking the hours that they're working um, for predominantly because you, you might be entitled to overtime pay for those hours work. But in addition, you kind of you're you're going to want to start that dialogue with your employer to, to establish, hey, my my contract kind of expects expectation is X, and I'm now working this excessive overtime hours. Um, is there something that we can do to address this? You know, perhaps maybe it's something it, you know, you're, you've taken on too many responsibilities and you're you're covering multiple positions. That might yeah. be the case, but you really won't know unless you start that dialogue with your employer.
0: If it is not written into your contract. Specifically, how many hours you're supposed to work a week or something like that. Is there any way that any law could possibly have teeth for a right to disconnect?
3: Uh, Unfortunately, right now, no. Um, There is no, I mean, the Employment Standards Act in Ontario does stipulate um, at which point, um, how many hours a week um, after which you would be entitled to what we call overtime pay, um, and, uh, but, but unfortunately there is no, you know, if you're working those hours, um, you're entitled to be paid overtime for them, but there's no maximum real hours at this point.
0: It's a fascinating topic that a lot of people are dealing with right now. And you, you know, that word burnout is, uh, is certainly being, uh, being bandied about, uh, Mackenzie Irwin with Samfiru2Market. and really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, you can hear, by the way, more of Mackenzie's colleagues talking about this kind of stuff on the employment law show that we have here on CHML Saturday and Sunday from 12 till one each day. So if you're interested in this stuff, there's more opportunity to dive into it.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: You have probably, we've talked about this on the show, so you've probably heard about it here and elsewhere. Bill C-10 that is being discussed in this country the last number of weeks and months, uh, and, and taking flack and taking shots from every side. And in a lot of ways, appropriately. So this is a deeply flawed bill, in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinions, nonetheless. Um, oh, and here's why, in case you're not, in case you're new with this, uh, many people, myself included, believe it has the potential to intrude upon our free expression, Many people, including myself, believe that it could give the CRTC more power than it already has, which is a lot. And the kind of power to fiddle with algorithms that decide what you see online and with social media, uh, it offers the chance to censorship, a lot of people say, which it really sounds like that's the case. But there are a lot of other pieces in here as well. They should they could tweak those parts and it might, you know, maybe there's a discussion around this thing, nonetheless. We will be discussing this again, I'm sure, on this show, but one of the arguments that the government is making for it right now is that it's going to push Canadian content. It's going to bring Canadian content to the fore. Canadian music that might otherwise not be heard will get heard. Canadian TV shows that might not get noticed will get noticed, on and on and on. So What about Canadian content? I want to bring in our good friend, Eric Alper, who is a music writer and commentator and publicist. And Eric, you you got to help me. uh, And don't be modest here. Eric was just cited by CNN as one of, what was it? One of the great tweet guys, one of the great Twitter people (laughs) in the world. What was the exact thing they said about you? Because it was amazing.
4: Um, I think it was something in the neighborhood of um, his Twitter feed, would make you want to stay on Twitter when you feel like cancelling the platform or something like that. It would basically just, you know, about all the goofy questions that I'd love to ask and read the answers for. They kind of just put a little bit of a spotlight on that. So that was very nice of them.
0: That was fantastic. Well, good for you. I mean, that's that's terrific. And that's not even why we have you on the show, but it could be, <laughs> no. and maybe down the road it will be. Yeah. All right. So, Eric, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, we heard a lot of Canadian music in our youth. Uh, Some of it was fantastic. Brian Adams, who became an international world musical celebrity all by himself, did not need Canadian content rules. He was going to make it Shania Twain, Celine Dion. Pick your person. There's lots of them. Others and I don't want to pick too many names, but the first one that always comes to mind when I think about this, Platinum Blonde, um, needed some CanCon help probably. Sure. But my point about this, as we talk about Bill C-10 and the idea of promoting Canadian music, Canadian we already have Canadian content rules that seem to have brought a lot of music and TV shows and movies to us already. Are they not sufficient anymore? You know...
4: Um, First of all, I I have to kind of argue with you about the point about when you and I were growing up, because I I don't really think you and I have. Um, But failing all of that, I think, (laughs) you know, it's interesting because I've kind of grappled with this in my mind over the last couple of weeks. And part of me does not want the government to actually handle a single whit of the online world that I so love and cherish and hate at the same time you know it's built and and surrounding itself based on secret algorithms that nobody has any clue there's a reason why we're so we're so Um, divided as a country um, here in Canada and also in the States and around the world, um, it's because of social media. I firmly believe that the algorithms are there and specifically designed to keep us on their platform, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. And it's designed to either make us laugh, make us cry or make us angry. And those three emotions are what advertisers have done For decades and decades and decades. So part of me is like, well, the government is trying to install um, and instill some sort of regulations to allow Canadian content to be shown more. But none of these platforms are absolutely without question going to be giving up a smidgen of information on how those algorithms work in the first place. Because the minute that companies find out how the algorithm works. And they're going to use it for their benefit. And that's not what Facebook and Twitter and Instagram want. They want you to keep guessing on why you're suddenly seeing all these things. Now, they have so much data and information about you and I that they're pretty accurate, I think, on what we love. But while I say that, that I don't want the government kind of on social media, the government has a big say in our cultural ability. It shows exactly what you talked about in the beginning. There's a a 35% Canadian content rule when it comes to music. So many bands from the Arkells to Platinum Blonde to Corey Hart to dozens, if not hundreds and thousands of bands wouldn't otherwise get heard. You know, um, what I found amazing about this is this last week, the Census Board... um, they they promoted the fact that um, there were, I think, 12 or 15 different Spotify playlists um, for Canadians to listen to while they're filling out their census. And it was chock full of Canadian artists, from Indigenous to hip-hop and rap to folk and soul and blues. That's where I love the government getting involved. I love the promotion of it. But there's still a lot of wonkiness when it comes to the government, you know, actually overseeing our cultural industries because they just haven't really done that so well.
0: Okay, but to your point then, we have, and I, I touched on this at the beginning, we yeah. have Canadian content rules. We have yeah. for decades now had bans that, let's be very honest, there are some that we have mentioned that would succeed regardless because they are fantastic musicians. The Arkells, for example, they would do well, no matter what. There are others that are crap and that we are, they're foisted upon us because they have Canadian content. And so now I, I look at this and I think regardless of whether you think they're crap or they're great, those rules have worked because we know about them. We know their music. So why do we need to take it steps further? Surely Canadians are, in addition to being exposed to this music that we're already being exposed to through CanCon, surely we're now mature enough to then decide what we like or don't like without having the government saying, well, no, we're going to tell you what you like because we're going to play it so much you have no choice but to like it.
4: Yeah, and that that's exactly it. You know, uh, it, 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 I mean, look, when I work in the music industry, I know a little bit more about what bands or what artists are, are having a priority from the big record label that essentially is going to ram that artist down our throats whether we like it or not but you know we've been growing up in a country where the cbc has done that for decades there are a lot of programs that just don't get simply great ratings but yet it's on season after season or week after week you know companies like amazon and netflix aren't neutral their algorithms are designed solely and purely by by consumer preferences. If you like horror films, you're only going to see horror films on the front page of Netflix. That's what it's designed to do. But if they suddenly are forced to have Canadian drama on there, um, that's where I, I have a little bit of a problem with it. But then again, though, see, this is why I grapple with it. Um, Sometimes we don't know what's good for us. Sometimes when you're a Canadian film company or a television company or a record label or even book publishing company, it's really hard to compete with the tens of millions of dollars in advertising and promotion budget coming from a company in the U.S., in fact, you know, there's the thinking as well that if it wasn't for Canadian content, maybe Brian Adams doesn't get heard so much. Maybe he doesn't sell so much. And that affects the amount of potential jobs that Brian Adams has given people or the amount of taxes that he has to pay. So I, I, I'm 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 sure I I'm not neutral because I can argue about it both ways. And I think that's the frustrating thing out of all of this, is that you have very, very smart and keen people Arguing on both sides whether it's advocating for more Canadian content in our Facebook feed, and then others are saying the government should have absolutely no right to mess with a a, a profit-making company's um, day-to-day operations, and they can promote themselves or whatever they want to promote to the best of their ability and and get out of there. Um, so that's why I think it's so heated, is because I think I think both sides are right, really.
0: Well, and then you get, and you just touched on it again. I mean, you get some, you know, the national broadcaster will promote certain music or certain shows or whatever. And let's be honest. I mean, the nicest way we can say it is a lot of it is not very good because if it was really good, people would want to watch it and want to listen to it. And the problem is though, if we don't, if they produce something or they expose us to something and we go, that's not good then somehow we're made to feel like well you're not really can you're not supporting the canadian industry wait my yeah. enter i should not be con- i should not be feeling like i have to support when i'm watching entertainment or listening to music that should be because it brings me joy and i enjoy it not out of a guilt that i have to support somebody just because some company or government is behind it do better uh, yes and and that's been
4: the knock against this this country since the CRTC regulated and instilled um, C- Canadian content regulation. And it's interesting because if you want to take exactly what you said one step further, um, radio broadcasters should absolutely, I think, be up in arms if, if a company like Netflix or Amazon on the television um, uh, don't get to be forced to, to show that Canadian content because I bet you that the the, the, broadca- the radio broadcasters are going to be next in line to say, well, we provide a service too. We provide promotion as well. We're out there trying to compete with the, with the same eyes and ears as everybody else out there you know, when you're a radio station like this one, your competition isn't just another radio station. It's Netflix, it's Amazon, it's Nef- It's everything that we're all in competition with each other for the listeners and audiences' free time. And when there seems to be a little bit of an imbalance of, well, your industry has to do this, but not this one, um, you know, that's where you start running into problems. You know, when Netflix wants to open up their Canadian office here in Toronto, part of the regulation for them to actually open up here was that um, not only were they given tax breaks to do it so that they can have more Canadian um, uh, Canadian productions in play, um, but that, you know, maybe somewhere down the road they weren't forced to have X amount of Canadian content on it because Netflix would rather if you put a gun to their head would rather show modern family and friends and the, you know, breaking bad all day long and for well, sure. whatever country you're in.
0: And Eric, let me point out why that is. Uh, there's a piece in the Toronto star this week and it was fascinating because, you know, things like shows like Kim's convenience that have been a, a, a we've has been seen as a huge Canadian hit and and look it is a huge Canadian hit. It's last episode drew 900,000 Canadians. But at the same time, that sounds great. 900,000 Canadians, that's that's terrific. Yeah, 2.1 million Canadians watched The Rookie that week, which is a really mediocre American cop show. And, and so, like, yeah, Kim's Convenience was terrific. And yet at the same time, you know, given the option, people have chosen, they've made a decision that more people would prefer to watch that other stuff.
4: Yeah, and, and, and I think what, what we what we might run into somewhere down the road is, is that if you have a Canadian television show and you're drawing ratings of a half a million or even that 900,000, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I bet you the Toronto Maple Leafs on a regular basis get higher ratings than that. What you end up doing though, is you end up closing the door completely on the future of Canadian broadcasting and Canadian production, because without Maybe those those regulations in place to to have x amount of Canadian content. Maybe a show like Shit's Creek, who didn't find its its you know footing until season three or even five. Um, maybe that doesn't exist. Maybe those actors and actresses and production crew and caterers, maybe they don't get to do something three years down the road in a major blockbuster. Maybe the the Canadian stars and businesses of tomorrow don't even have a shot if all it is is just a numbers game.
0: And I agree that, with you. you know, I agree with you. I agree with I agree with the general concept of Canadian content um, as that that we shouldn't eliminate those rules that we should have it because you're right. We are in the shadow of the country that puts out more entertainment and, it, and it'll get swallowed up. So I agree with the concept of Canadian content. Where I question this now, though, Eric, is we have these Canadian content rules in play, and this is where Bill C-10 comes in. Should entertainment, uh, leaving that part aside, should entertainment, should art not be a meritocracy? That, you know, if you want people to watch it, make it good. And we will give that Canadian content rule to say, we're going to put it out there to expose it to you. But this seems like we're taking it to another, another level and saying, not only are we going to do that, we're going to kind of hide the other stuff and make sure that this is there. There's somewhere along the way, you've got to be good to get people to pay attention to you and stick with you. We can introduce it, but it's on you to be good.
4: You wanted a word this Bill completely got me so angry and and it's nothing against the, the Liberal government because no matter who's in power, they're going to do the exact same thing. Is when the bill was first introduced back in April, the Liberal the Liberal government put it, a section in the bill that had user generated content as part of it, meaning that you know if you were putting up cat videos or of your teenage sons and daughters dancing on TikTok. Um, maybe that doesn't get popular because there's no Canadian content in there. The very fact that the government wanted to absolutely control that with user-generated content lost me, and it's so suspicious now that they just put it in there so that they can remove it, which they have, in order to say, well, we're kind of meeting you halfway, and this is what we really want. What the government truly wants, in any case, is just to keep collecting tax dollars in as much mm. as we can. I don't think that the end result is to control our minds or control our, our our you know our soul and our entertainment. But I do think that by by them not doing ideas like this, they are fully aware that companies like Amazon and Netflix will completely bulldoze over much of the Canadian content that's out there and you'll never see it again. And once it's gone, it's really hard to bring it back.
0: And again, like I, I, this discussion yeah. we're having right now is not an anti-cancon argument. I think there is value in that. It's the question of how how far do you push this, how difficult do you make the the, the rules or whatever else. And one more thing before we go, and this one has always yeah. struck me. So, talk TV for a minute, because we've been talking TV. Wh- how do you determine? I know there are there are rules about what constitutes cancon. But just because a show is based in Winnipeg or Regina, does that make it uniquely Canadian? What if the plot is exactly the same as what you would see on an American show? Does it make it then a Canadian because it's in Winnipeg? I mean, there was, what was that show? Rookie Blue. Yeah. It was an American cop show based in Toronto. Was that then a Canadian show? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't even understand, and I think most people, I know there are criteria, but I don't think most people would understand what the Canadian content thing is. How do I know when it's Canadian enough now for me to feel good about it?
4: Yeah, for, for sure. And and look, the entertainment industry is not the most honest sometimes, you know, where they could have an American television show and bring it up here in Toronto or Hamilton to do the editing. Does that make it a Canadian content show? You know, in music, it's the music, the the artist the lyrics, and the performance has to be Canadian in order to be 100% Canadian content. When you're playing with uh, a television show of of potentially thousands of staffers all working on that show, where does that happen? I agree with you. I I think it's going to be fascinating to see what's going on, especially when we're all coming out of the isolation period crossing fingers so it's going to be you know these television and movie ratings might just drop a little when it comes to the online streaming
0: world this is definitely going to be one for
4: for you and i to keep our eye on
0: eric alper always love having you on thanks for taking a few minutes and look him up on twitter he is one of the greatest twitter people in the world look him up go on there and and i'm not just saying it although i would it's also (laughs) cnn so eric thanks for this appreciate it
4: no problem thanks for having me scott we'll talk
1: soon (laughs)